Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Hallecker, and today uh, joining us is sociology professor from Villanova, Rick Eckstein, the co-author of this fascinating book, Public Dollars, Private Stadiums. Uh, Kevin Delaney, uh, who uh, is the co-author, couldn't be with us today, but we're delighted to have you here, Rick. Thank you, Carl. Uh, Rick, uh, I know there's been columns in a newspaper, the Inquirer, your book has generated a lot of controversy and a lot of good comments, and there's a lot of good information here. Uh, how did you and Kevin decide to write this book, or why, I should say? Well, the unofficial <laughs> story is that we were, we were celebrating the end of a semester and had a few too many beers and decided to do something silly. That's the unofficial story. The official story is it's uh, things that we've always been interested in. Both our first books that we worked on uh, five to ten years ago was a, a lot about social inequality and especially how corporations especially have an inordinate influence on public policy, uh, unbeknownst to most of the public, mm -hmm. uh, that important decisions aren't just made in the political realm, but they're made in the, in the economic realm as well. Kevin's first book was on how companies declare bankruptcy, not as a defensive mechanism, but as a strategic move to try to maximize their profits. And my first book was about nuclear power plants and how they sometimes open, sometimes close, which have, might have nothing to do with the actual issue of nuclear power. Interesting. Public dollars, private stadiums. What does that mean? Well, public dollars is, is pretty evident. Right. There's been a massive wave of public spending on sports stadiums in the last 15 years, upwards of $10 billion of tax money of various sorts, various kinds of taxes. The private stadiums part is a little trickier because these stadiums are generally owned by some municipality or stadium authority. We use the term private stadiums because the revenues from these stadiums, even though that they were paid for with public dollars, more and more are accruing to the sports teams who work in them, but they haven't paid for them, but they get the revenues. And that's probably a misconception because I assume most people believe that the money is filtering in and it's filtering into the communities, or at least that's what uh, we would be led to believe. Well, we're told that, and there is money filtering in, but what's usually left for the municipalities now is whatever taxes are generated from either the ticket sales or concession sales or parking. It used to be, for instance, in Philadelphia at, at Veterans Stadium, the city controlled most of the revenues. So when you went to park your car, the city got the revenue from the parking plus the tax. So it got two revenue streams. Now the teams control the parking revenue, so they get your $5, or t I guess it's more $10 or $12 for parking, and the city gets the tax. The city might get extra money if lots and lots of people go and park their cars, or lots and lots of people start going to the games, or they start charging $50 for a hot dog, then the tax will be higher and the city might make, make some money. Fine. Your book is fascinating on, on two levels. First of all, it's, it's, it's good for a layman like me, for a novice who wants to read about these issues, but it's also a very serious, uh, it's not dry, but it's a serious uh, academic study. And one of the uh, important variables you, you talk about, if that's the right word, it's probably not, is the concept of a local growth coalition. What is this and how does this play into the issue of stadium building? Well, on your first point, First, we were very conscious about trying to write this book for a general audience. It's an important issue. It's something that's on people's minds. People should understand it more. It's a confusing issue sometimes. And we wanted to make sure that if just a regular person, a non-academic, picked up the book, that they could enjoy it, they could learn something from it, and perhaps have a positive influence on the public policy. And we picked this idea of local growth coalitions because, it's for us, it's the hidden secret of how public policy in general, and these policies specifically, 
kind of gets spun, that there's a group of people, well, we'll, we'll put it this way, there, there are coalitions, there are, there are alliances between the local corporations in a city and the political actors in a community. And even though the policy decisions are made overtly by the political actors, mm -hmm. the corporate community usually has an incredible amount of power behind the scenes, uh, sometimes in front of the cameras, but usually behind the scenes, and can shape policy in ways that serve their own interests, serve the interests of what you could call a corporate elite at the expense of the general community, even though they're portrayed as being in the interest of the general community. And we think stadiums fit into that mold really nicely because they're portrayed as being good for everybody in a number of ways, which I'm sure we'll discuss, uh, but really more and more the stadiums and the revenues especially are serving very narrow interests. Right. Just, just let's continue with what you're talking about here because you, you talk about very clearly and emphatically in the book, you talk about how growth coalitions use a variety of uh, economic and social benefits to sell the importance of stadiums. Can you talk about some of these strategies? Sure. Or, well, or? there are two basic strategies that any proponent of a new sports stadium is going to use. One we call the economic strategies, and that's been traditionally the most widely used. It, pretty common stuff is that the stadium is going to generate either direct economic growth through construction jobs, uh, through jobs that people have at the stadiums, selling peanuts, uh, selling hot dogs, wiping off the seats, parking cars. And then indirectly, and this is where most of the economic argument comes to play, indirectly there will be all this spin-off or ancillary development, restaurants in the area, bars in the area, uh, people will perhaps open new parking garages in the area, and it will have what some call a snowball or multiplier effect on the whole economy of a region. So that's the economic arguments. Now, sports economists for the last 20 years have pretty much blown that argument out of the water. It, it doesn't hold much credibility anymore. So what we've noticed in our research is that there's been the strategic move by stadium proponents away from these economic arguments and, and toward what we call more social or cultural arguments. And they argue now that instead of being an economic windfall for the city, you'll have a social windfall. You'll feel better about yourselves. People looking at your city will feel better about your city. We call these things community self-esteem and community collective conscience, this idea that well, you can be, an, and it's embodied with this idea that you want to be a major league city. And how best to be a major league city than have major league sports in brand new major league stadiums. Right. You do, you do mention you know, that this information is not secret, that these economic benefits and the social benefits don't really exist. And yet, uh, there seems to be we stick our heads in the sand and ignore this. Is that any relationship between that and America's just general glorification of professional sports? Do you well, I think? think I think it's uh, definitely interrelated. But there have been some very overt, conscious efforts to try to neutralize the the conclusions that academics and journalists have been drawing for the last twenty years, and that is that these stadiums do not pay off economically. So what proponents have done is tried to criticize them. They try to uh, ridicule these studies. Uh, and they offer sometimes their own studies, which we call advocacy studies, which have the appearance of being kind of neutral and scientific and objective, but are really just public relations mm -hmm. mechanisms for the teams, mostly the teams, to justify why they should have tax dollars for their new stadium. And the Phillies, were, they had a tremendously effective uh, advocacy study that they put out before they started uh, building this new stadium. Uh, Rick, before we uh, discuss the hometown Philly scene here, let's talk about some of the interesting uh, scenarios that went on in the Pittsburgh area with the building of their two new stadiums. 
you discuss in detail how funding for the new football and baseball stadiums in Pittsburgh short-circuited democracy, I think was the phrase you used. Can you talk about that? Well, it was an interesting process. And Pittsburgh, was, Pittsburgh was the first city we started to study, and they were having a referendum on the ballot in November of 1997, laying out an increase in the sales tax, not just for Pittsburgh, but for the 11 county areas surrounding Pittsburgh. And they were going to use this 1% sales tax to fund two new stadiums and an expansion of the existing convention center with the usual explanation that it would generate a lot of economic development, bring people to Pittsburgh, put it on the map, and everybody would benefit from it. Now, the voters in the Pittsburgh area completely trashed this referendum. They voted against it by an almost two-to-one margin. Uh, the mayor had warned, Mayor Tom Murphy had warned, that if it went down, if the, if the referendum lost, that they were in jeopardy of losing both the Steelers and the Pirates. And there would be no plan B if the referendum got voted down. Well, the day after the election, Plan B started to be discussed, and people in Pittsburgh, in their very powerful local growth coalition, figured out a way to get the money anyway by diverting existing revenues without having another vote. And as one person in Pittsburgh told us, all they needed was four or five signatures, and they were pretty sure they could get them because they were all basically political appointees. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. So they've diverted money from one source or another source, hotel and tax revenues. They have a regional asset district, which funds uh, a lot of things like libraries. Uh, you, you were in Pittsburgh, you probably yep. knew yep. about it. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're diverting some of that money now to the stadiums and the convention center. And those things go together in Pittsburgh. One of the problems that the city's facing right now, uh, financially, is that it's such a huge project with the stadiums and the convention center expansion that it's just been a, a, a black hole for money. And as tourism has actually gone down in Pittsburgh and conventions have not increased as much as they thought they would and attendance at the baseball stadium increased briefly but now is back down to Three Rivers levels of, of before. There hasn't been an increase in the tax base which is what's going to be used to pay off the bonds for the stadium. So it, it hasn't caused the problems in Pittsburgh but it's certainly exacerbated right. the financial problems there. And it's basically robbing Peter to pay Paul. In one sense, these there is a finite pool, and mm -hmm. it's going to go to libraries or ballparks right. or this or that. Plus, all the cities in the in the area in Allegheny mm -hmm. County get a little cut of that regional asset money. Uh, Pittsburgh, for example, gets about twenty million dollars per year mm -hmm. right off the top to do with I, I assume what they want with, which could be anything. Right, and especially now, I, I don't think any city in the Northeast is suffering more economic hard times than Pittsburgh at this point. It's going to be sort of a situation of the emperor's uh, new clothes, isn't it? Yeah, and there's there's uh, very little they can do. The the bonds are due. They have the payments are due. The stadiums are built. The convention center's finished, uh, but the the bills keep coming in, and there's less and less money to go around to pay the bills. I'm not sure what Pittsburgh is going to do to uh, to get itself out of this hole. The state's going to have to help, but the state now doesn't have uh, a whole lot of money either. Right. right. Uh, well, let's come back uh, to the friendly uh, environment of Philadelphia here. And uh, you had started to mention the study the, uh, from the late unlamented Arthur Anderson. Yes. A company that Arthur Anderson, they had that a study that justified uh, stated for the new Phillies. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, this was, well, this wasn't what put Arthur Anderson in the graveyard, but this was the kind of thing that accounting firms and other financial firms do, which get into this whole conflict of interest area where you're providing a supposedly a neutral objective service or analysis for a client, but this is who your livelihood depends on as an organization, and you want to give your clients what they're expecting. So when the Phillies ask Arthur Anderson to do a study about the economic impact of a new stadium, 
it's very unlikely that the conclusions are going to be, well, it's a bad idea. You shouldn't build a stadium. And we've seen enough of these advocacy studies in other cities to know there, there are very clear patterns and what to expect. And the problems with these studies are pretty similar from city to city. <coughs> Excuse me. One thing that was a problem in the, in the Anderson study, we have a whole section in the, in the book that goes over this, so I'd, I'd, I'd rather people, of course, buy the book than just learn it here. There was a, there was a real problem with their sampling. When uh, Arthur Anderson did the study, they went out to the ballpark one day or a couple of days, and they handed out questionnaires. And they didn't really pay any attention to who they were giving the questionnaires to. And they took them back and counted them up and made some conclusions. Now, one thing that happened with these questionnaires that, that we figured out, although they didn't pay any mind to it, is that they would ask an adult how much they spent at the ballpark. And then they would attribute, or not, not just at the ballpark, but that day. And then they would attribute all that spending to the ballpark's existence, as though they might not have spent that money on something else, right. either in the city or somewhere else. And, and, and wouldn't know if it was in the city mm -hmm. or somewhere else. As economists sometimes call that the substitution effect. Right. The money you spend here could also be spent in a bar, a restaurant, a video money. store. That's yes. right. It's the same money. It's just being spent in a, in a different spot. But they asked these questions of adults who were giving responses, we're pretty sure, based on their whole family. Because there are kids there. But kids weren't sampled. So if an adult, say, says, I spent $23, they're including the money they spent for their kids, mm -hmm. let's say, for lunch also. But what the Arthur Anderson study did was take that $23, and I don't know if that's the right number, but it's close, and multiply that by the entire attendance base for the year, which was, I think, $1.8 million for that year. So in a sense, you're counting people twice, because you're counting children as spending $23 each, which they haven't. They're all part of that family unit. That was just one of the problems with the, with the Anderson study. So it greatly inflated the actual amount of spending that takes place without even considering the substitution effect. Right. Can you tell us about, a little bit different because the struggle for the stadiums in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh were t different and they were different because they were different types of cities. Can you talk a little bit about that, how the differences in the cities led to different types of strategies and fights for the stadiums? Well, one of the interesting differences, and it's, it's kind of ironic, is that even though Philadelphia is the fifth biggest city in the United States, it has a very small, weak growth coalition. There are very few major corporations that are headquartered here. Uh, they don't have a powerful corporate community. They have, or they used to have, uh, a CEO-only group. Many cities have these elite business roundtables, and Philadelphia had one, but it wasn't a particularly powerful group, and it's since been folded into the Chamber of Commerce. It was called Greater Philadelphia First. And we spoke with people there, and they just didn't think stadiums were very important. And one of the reasons is that when you have a corporate base, when, you have a when you're a headquarters city, you're constantly trying to recruit new executives to your city. And in the eyes of the current executives, what gets new executives there are amenities like ballparks and the luxury suites mm -hmm. that come with them. So when we talk to people in, Phil I'm sorry, in Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, some of the mid-sized cities, in their mind, the only way they can get what they call the A-level talent to their cities instead of Boston or San Francisco is to hold these trinkets in front of them. So they needed these stadiums as a recruitment mechanism. And that was the most interesting thing, I think, that we found in, in our five years of research. Can you talk about the city of Philadelphia? Yeah, in, in addition to not having a powerful local growth coalition anchored with a, a powerful corporate community, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are just different kinds of cities. 
Uh, Pittsburgh is basically, as you know from living there, is a nine to five city. People come and they leave and nothing much happens after five o'clock, the place shuts down. Philadelphia is much more of a 24-hour city. People live there, people work there, people play there. It has neighborhoods, it's vibrant, and this is right in the downtown location. What happens with that and what makes them different and how the whole stadium initiatives were framed is that Philadelphia is not susceptible to these appeals to community self-esteem or community collective right. conscience. The idea that Philadelphia will turn into another Harrisburg or, or a, 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 I don't know, an Altoona if it doesn't have sports stadium just doesn't resonate, just yeah. doesn't work here. But you can use that argument in Pittsburgh and say, well, you know, you could be Johnstown. Or what we heard in Cleveland was that, well, you could be Akron. If you lose the Indians, you'll, you'll be Akron. And in Phoenix, they said, well, you could be Tucson. And everyone seemed to have this city that they didn't want to become, <laughs> or at least that the, the powerful people who were kind of creating this message kept spinning it this way. I said, look, this is all that keeps Cincinnati from being Dayton, is that you've got the Reds and you've got the Bengals, and that makes you major league. That, in fact, that was the whole campaign in Cincinnati where they were absolutely brilliant, a very powerful local growth coalition with a very precise message, keep Cincinnati a major league city. And the referendum to increase the sales tax there for the stadiums passed overwhelmingly. A very good message that they did there. Philadelphia just, it just <clears throat> doesn't ring here. Yeah, just, to, uh, I took the liberty of writing a couple of sentences from your book I just wanted to read that I think, uh, you know, really distill the issues quite nicely. Uh, this is a quote from you and Kevin. It says, um, in Cincinnati, racial unrest and other social problems may continue. Where good stadiums have been defined as more socially important than good jobs, good libraries, and good schools, perhaps we need an entirely new vision for what makes an American city a major league city. That's a pretty powerful statement, and it's a good one about uh, what really makes a city major league. Well, there's a lot of, or there sh let's say there should be a lot of debate about what would make a community a first-rate community. And the way that the landscape is being shaped right now is that sports and maybe to a lesser extent entertainment, but let's say sports, is taking the central role. That you are a good community, you are a good place to live if you have sports teams. Primarily, major league sports teams. Minor league sports teams, maybe. But major league sports teams, that's what puts you on the map. That's what makes you a city on the go. These are the terms that people were using when we were interviewing them. We want to be a city on the go, a city on the move. We want to bring people here. What better way to do it with sports? What you have then, what you create, is this kind of almost dichotomy between the people who visit a city for its amenities and the people who actually live in a city. And the needs of those people are very different. You know, if you're visiting a city, if you, if you view the city as a playground, if you live in the suburbs, say, well, you want to come in, you want to eat, you want to see a game, you want to see a show, and then you want to leave. So those kinds of things are important to you. Maybe perhaps mass transit from the suburbs in, not around town, would be important to you. But if you live in the city, if that's where your roots are, if that's where your home is, well, you're interested in parks, you're interested in libraries, you're interested in schools. The schools in the cities that we study are almost uniformly a disaster. And the, st the new stadiums in these cities, those that have them, haven't bailed the schools out. The public education system hasn't improved at all, even though a lot of times during the initiatives and the campaigns, that's always a promise. The schools will get better, we'll have more tax money, everybody will gain. So we, we think that there are a lot of debate and discussion needs to go on and that people need to put their foot down, perhaps, and say, hey, that's not what makes a city first rate. It's not stadiums. It's these other things about the quality of everyday life for regular folks. Right. Very important point that we need 
not to lose sight of. Uh, a fascinating, and I have to admit, a little unsettling anecdote as you talk about the uh, process that went on to fund the four stadiums, the two in Pittsburgh and the two in Philadelphia, on the state level. And you say it had less to do with a democratic process and more to do with political horse trading. Well, we were shocked when we learned this, and because we were pretty naive going into this, and we knew at the time, this was in the around 1997, that it was clear that all the polls that were being done, the folks in Pennsylvania, all over the state, did not want Harrisburg and the state government to be spending money on sports stadiums. And we heard from, we talked to one state legislator who said that the calls to his office and to all the offices of the people who he knew, which were most of them, were about 90% against using state dollars for these stadiums, the two in Pittsburgh and the two in Philadelphia. But that had nothing to do with what unfolded because the leaders of the parties and at that time Governor Ridge wanted the stadiums. Apparently there's all this, as we say in the book, horse trading that goes on. They identify people, the party leaders will identify people from safe districts and get them to vote for an unpopular thing because they're, they're not going to pay any penalty mm -hmm. for it. So, so a, a district that's 90% Democratic, that assemblyman or assemblywoman or senator will vote for an unpopular thing because they won't lose, they won't have to, there won't be any fallout from it. And you trade votes and you get a stadium here and you get a road and you get a maybe a library subsidy and everybody has something that they want and you get enough votes to pass it and that's what happened. Even though fully 90% of the people in Pennsylvania did not want to do this, it, it happened anyway. So popular sentiment really sometimes is irrelevant to public policy. Right. Uh, Rick, can you maybe give us some reforms uh, as best as you can that might help remedy these situations? I, I know it's a, it's a very difficult issue, but just maybe some thoughts in your own mind. Well, some cities and some communities have tried to make reforms, and unfortunately they, you know, they, run, into the, they run into the power structure that isn't necessarily amenable to reforms. In, in uh, Arizona, for instance, the people in Phoenix, or in Maricopa County, which surrounds Phoenix, voted against uh, stadium tax uh, upwards of 10 years ago. At the same time, they voted to put a limit on any amount of public funds that could be used for any sports-related project over $3 million. It would have to come to a public vote if, if a city or a county wanted to spend more than $3 million. Well, the folks in, in Arizona, just they simply ignored that, and they built Bank One Ballpark anyway. They figured out a loophole, much like they did in Pittsburgh, and, and did it. So that was an idea is try to limit the amount, actually by law, limit the amount of money that a stadium or that a, that a municipality at whatever level could use. I'm not sure that's going to work in the long run because these are very powerful interests who can figure out ways and these coalitions between the corporate community and the political community mm -hmm. uh, seem, to have, seem to find their ways. Some referendums are successful in, in San Francisco. Four times, five times uh, residents voted against subsidizing a new ballpark for the Giants, and that helped. And the Giants paid for it themselves. So perhaps our hope, and this is a little self-serving, but our hope is that if, if people learn more about the process itself behind the building of the ballparks, not necessarily the outcomes, but going into it, understand how growth coalitions work, understand that there are these hidden powerful actors that inordinately shape public policy. Maybe those are the people you put the pressure on. Instead of the sports teams who are acting like businesses, they're trying to maximize their profits. That's what they do. But these other companies who are in town, these headquarter companies, perhaps in Pittsburgh, you could uh, say boycott uh, Heinz ketchup, start eating Hunt's ketchup, or you wouldn't use uh, Westinghouse appliances anymore. You just do General Electric. I and mean, that's, that's kind of silly, but 
those sorts of strategies might work. Draw attention to the problem. Yeah, and they might put pressure on people who, and organizations who are perhaps a little more susceptible to that kind of public pressure. But you know, it, it, it's not clear what's, what's going to stop this. Well, on that somber note, I want to thank you, Dr. Rick Eckstein, for joining us today on Book Chat to discuss your fascinating book, Public Dollars, Private Stadiums. It's fascinating. We encourage people to buy the book. There's probably a lot of information you want to mark up here. It's uh, well worth the price. I'm Carl Hellicker, and this is Book Chat.